Well, good morning. And it is wonderful to be here with you. Uh, this church has a lot of meaning uh, for my wife and I, our family. Of course, her and her family attended here for many years. And this is where we got married. This is where we attended after we got married. And it has a very special place in our hearts. And so we are very thankful to be here with you. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I greatly appreciate the, the invite from Jeremy and you all to be with you as you celebrate your homecoming. But Jeremy, what did you say, 170 years? 170 years since the founding of this church. That is wonderful. That is, that is amazing. And as I was thinking of that, um, I was thinking of our own church and the truths that we uh, try to stress within our own church and emphasize to establish uh, our church for generations to come so that one day perhaps we too uh, might celebrate 170 years in our own church Amen. as you are this day by God's grace. And these truths that we find here in Philippians 2, they're very central to the strength and the vitality of a church. And the things that we'll go over today are things that I'm sure that you already know, but it's wonderful to have a reminder every now and again Amen. to remind us of the things that we need to be doing for each other to remind us of the greatness and the majesty of our God who has saved us and brought us together. Amen. As a church is only as strong as its people. Amen. A church needs to be uh, equipping its people as this church has for many generations. And a church needs each person in the church to take part in furthering that love and that commitment to the Lord Jesus. Everyone is needed within a church. It is necessary for all of us to love one another, to be kind one another, to serve one another, to pursue holiness together, to hold each other accountable, and reminding each other of the glorious work of our Lord Jesus in redeeming us. So this particular passage of Scripture is to be a reminder for us, to remind us all of our duty towards one another and the basis on which that love and unity is built within a church that keeps it strong and keeps it moving forward for generations to come. So if you would here in Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, or excuse me, 1 to 11. Let us give our attention to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's have a moment's word of prayer. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the work that you continually do in our lives, how you continually bring us closer to the Lord Jesus, shaping us and molding us through the scripture and the spirit of God working in our hearts, applying it. Father, we pray that Christ will be magnified in our hearts today, that your name will be glorified among your people. Father, do a mighty work within us by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. So these are a number of things that we already know, but again, it's important for us to be reminded of these things. It's important to remind each other of the greatness of God, what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And then our duty towards one another. Here in Philippians, this is, this is a wonderful book, as I'm sure that you know. This small letter that Paul is penning to the church at Philippi, this is just a few years before he is getting ready to give his life for Christ. He is in a dungeon. He is chained to a guard. And here his concern is not for himself. It's not for others trying to rescue him. His concern is for the churches of the Lord Jesus and specifically the church at Philippi. He is trying to encourage them. He's trying to set a number of things straight here. He's trying to further them along in their walk with Christ. He's expressing to them their duty of conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he gets into those specifics here in chapter 2 of what that means, how to express that. How do you conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven? How do you conduct yourselves towards one another? And these are the very things that he is beginning here. And as he is starting into this, this whole theme is really centered on unity and how to maintain unity, how to cultivate unity within a church. Because that is exactly what is needed for a church to further. You need unity. You need to be coming together. And so the very things that he begins with is expressing the, the graces of God that you all have received. Everyone has received these particular blessings of the Lord Jesus as a result of his finished work on your behalf. Amen. And the very first thing that he begins here, there in verse 1, as he is getting ready to express their duty towards one another, he says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, and these are important factors here. These are things that you have received in Christ. This encouragement, this coming alongside and that's the very thing that Jesus expresses of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, is that the Holy Spirit, who is another comforter, he is the helper, he is the paraclete, he is the one who comes alongside you. He is the one who encourages your hearts. He alone is the one who is Christ's presence on earth. And he alone is the one who is dwelling with you and, and strengthening you every day to endure the things of life. He is the one who brings that encouragement, the one who comes alongside us, the one who brings that consolation of, to our hearts. When we have those, those times of being distraught, downtrodden, the Holy Spirit of God comes alongside our trembling hearts to bring comfort and solace. He is the one who alone who applies the very benefits of Christ to us, expressing the love of God to us, working within our hearts, to give us the strength that we need every day 
It's the Spirit of God who does that. We have a really bad habit, and, and perhaps we mean to be, you know, this, this is meant to be a good thing, but we tell people all the time, especially when they're enduring various trials and sufferings and all of that, we express to them, you're a very strong person, you can get through this. But the fact of the matter is, is they're not. You're not. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who provides to you the strength that you need every day. Who provides the comfort. Who, who, he's the one alone who carries you. If it was left to ourselves, we would have given up a long time ago. But in the times in which you are suffering, in the times in which you are enduring your trials, and you get to the point where you say, I'm at the end of my rope, and I'm done, I'm going to give up. But then you don't. <laughs> Why don't you? Because it's the Spirit of God who is encouraging your heart, who is strengthening you to endure. He is the one who grants that peace that surpasses all understanding, as Paul will say later in Philippians. In a time in which you shouldn't have peace, you do have peace. Because it's a supernatural peace. It's a peace that Christ himself promised those who follow him. Amen. This is what the Spirit of God does. Because of your fellowship with him, because that's what he says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... And he really means that he's not saying if there is. He's, the word actually means since there is. Because there is. The Holy Spirit of God does a mighty work within us every day and carries us. He alone is the one who perfects our prayers to God. He alone is the one who perfects our worship towards God. Amen. It's all him. He is the one who lifts up our countenance. He intercedes when we're so distraught that we don't even know what to pray. He intercedes on our behalf for the people of God. He feeds our souls with the truths of God. He strengthens us with the word of God that he inspired, applying it to our heart. And as we're reading and studying the scripture, it's then that that encouragement comes and that, that grace comes, the strength that we need every day. These are the great blessings that all the people of God have received in Christ. All of you have who are in Christ. And this is what Paul is bringing back to the church. Because of these things that you have received, this encouragement, the consolation, the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and the compassion that you receive from God because you are the objects of God's love and His, His compassion. Do you realize that? Amen. You know, one of the amazing things to me is that when you read in the Scripture of the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says in John 17, you love me before the foundation of the world. You think of that, that amazing divine love. That same love with which the Father loves the Son is the same love that He has for you because you are in the Son. Amen. You know that? Amen. That is amazing to think that God would love us to that degree. And you have the fullness of God's love towards you. There isn't a limit to God's love. There isn't that you have a certain degree of God's love until you further along in your Christian walk. You have the complete fullness of God's love towards you because the Son died for you. Amen. So in light of those things, this is where we, we rejoice in what, what God is providing for us in the Spirit of God who brings about all these things. And as we're, as, just real quickly as we think of that, of what all the Spirit does and He brings and what a gift that He is, it's, it's an amazing thought that God doesn't just give you a little bit of what you need to endure, but He gives you the fullness of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is, 
when you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you're reading in Matthew 6 and you're reading how Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you what is good to those who ask him? And he says in the Gospel of Luke, give the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? And one theologian said it this way, of God's undescribable gift of the Spirit to you to provide everything that you need. He says that when you're praying and you ask for help, he's giving you the helper. When you're praying and you're asking for comfort, he's giving you the comforter. When you're praying and you're asking for truth, he's giving you the spirit of truth. When you're praying and you're asking for strength, he's giving you the spirit of power. You ask for the product, he's giving you the source. You ask for the gift, he's giving you the giver. You have everything that you need in the spirit of God. And that is one of the great blessings that we have received in Christ. So in light of those things, in light of those wonderful truths and those realities, this is where the Apostle Paul then is going to to express how they ought to be towards one another, the church in their dealings with one another, the call for selfless conduct. He says, make my joy complete. And this is important because Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are God's words. And so as Paul is saying, make my joy complete, this is what makes... The joy of the Lord complete. This is what pleases the Lord. And he goes into these these affirmatives. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is he saying? It's very simple, isn't it? I mean, it's right there. Be of the same mind. Agree. Agree on the things of God. And this is where you come together as you're, you're going over what, what the church stands for and what the church believes that is from the word of God. You're agreeing on these truths because they are founded in the word of God. You're not pulling from other resources. You're not trying to, to come up with clever ideas. As one theologian said, God doesn't need our clever ideas. He just needs, to do, he needs us to do what is written. That's it. So it's agreeing together, it's coming together, and it is, it is learning together. It is understanding what God's Word teaches and delighting in those things together. And so there is that, that, that being of the same mind when it comes to the Scripture. Maintaining the same love. And that is that agape love. That is that selfless act of the will love that Christ has introduced us to. You know, as you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you have that that whole uh, passage there of love that is often read at weddings and all of that. And while that's, that's, that's wonderful, that kind of love that's being expressed there is the kind of love that should exist within the church. Love is patient. Love is kind. And on and on you go. This, this is love that exists in the church setting, not just between a man and his wife. It is the church itself. Maintaining love. Loving one another. Being selfless towards one another. Because those are the things he's going to express here. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. Being united together. And it's really expressing the very same things that he just said. Being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love. That's what it means. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose, and the purpose of any church should be the glory of God. Plain and simple. 
How can the church glorify the Lord? And in this context in which he is expressing these truths, a church glorifies the Lord by being united together. Not selfish. And well, we're going to get into that. And he actually says that very thing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't try to lord over anybody. Don't try to establish yourself. Serve others. Prefer them above yourself. That means that you're doing exactly what he says, not looking out for your own personal interest, but the interest of others. You're not an island unto yourself. That, that whole saying that we hear so often of, I'm looking out for number one, that's not within the Christian faith. You're to look out for each other. And what does that mean? Well, you're coming alongside each other to pray for one another, to encourage one another. You're seeing what's going on in someone else's life, and you've got to sacrifice your time in order to go to them and try to console them or try to comfort them. Whatever is needed, that is what you do. And sacrificing a time is something that we don't really want to do. We're very stingy with our time, and often we end up squandering our time and using it for the glory of God anyway. <clears throat> we're not to be self-imposing we're not to be self-centered we're not to be arrogant really thinking that we're something among the church body because the scripture actually tells us Paul actually tells us that not a man think he is something when he is nothing Amen. if a man thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself and just to help us out as the scripture always does when we really consider what the scripture tells us of the faith that we have in Christ, it helps to keep us humble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, this is what the Apostle Paul says. For, considering your, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Well, that might hurt some feelings right there. Because we're not these things according to the world's standards. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. Amen. But by his doing. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are not in Christ because of any worldly wisdom that we had, or how special that we thought that we are, or how much of a great speaker that we are, or how many wonderful things. You are in Christ Jesus out of a pure act of God's grace. Amen. That's it. Whereas we were weak and we were nothing... Now God has made us something in Christ. Because now in him and because of him, you are now sons and daughters of the great king. So what do we have to boast about? We couldn't earn our salvation. We didn't merit it in any way. We weren't good enough to have received it. We received it freely from our Lord. And so in light of those things, we don't puff ourselves up. But we walk in humility. And we serve one another and look out for each other's interest, which also includes a very uncomfortable thing that sometimes we have to do. 
and that's holding each other accountable. It is necessary for a church to hold each other accountable. When you go back to the time of the Reformation, um, great revival that has occurred within human history that has, has just changed the course of a number of things 500 years ago, the Reformers taught that there were three marks of a true church. The correct preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the correct administration of the sacraments, a baptism in the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. If you lose any one of the three, you no longer become a true church of Christ. And so there must be accountability. And that means that you have to come alongside each other instead of saying, well, that's none of my business. It should be your business because these are your brothers and sisters in Christ who are perhaps falling into sin. And that's why Paul says, if you see a brother or sister in fault, you who are spiritual, go restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourselves also. There has to be, that is what that love is, is looking out for one another and holding each other accountable out of love. It's not taking the Bible and wanting to throw it over somebody's head or any of that other stuff. It is coming alongside them, expressing that same encouragement and consolation that Christ has given us. We're coming alongside others and we are loving them to that extent that we would go to them and tell them the truth. This isn't the way a child of God lives. This is, how can we help you? How can we pray for you? How can we help you to overcome this sin? That is, that, that is the kind of love that should exist within a church. Because it's helping to further everyone along in, in holiness and in godliness. We're on this journey together. And so we love one another to that extent. Now the question is, how do we cultivate that? It's easy to say those things. It's easy... To look at that and say, okay, we need to walk in humility. We need to pray for one another. We need to prefer one another. Well, how do we do that? And that's where he gives the example of the Lord Jesus. The greatest example. And he says to the church. And again, you see his, his heart being expressed here. He wants to further them along. He doesn't want any dissensions within the church. He wants them to come together. And in order to do that, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the things that he's getting ready to say here are themselves just amazing. To consider what the Lord Jesus did in order to redeem his people. He says, although he existed in the form of God... Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you're, you're seeing a contrast here. Of the, the state that Christ existed in before he became incarnate, before he became man. And then what happened after that. So he says he's in the form of God beforehand and now he's being made in the likeness of men. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. But now he's being found in appearance as a man. He empties himself. He humbles himself is what it means. He takes the form of a bond servant. He becomes obedient unto death. Amen. He existed in the form of God. This is expressing the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is in fact God. He's not lesser than the Father. He's not lesser than the Holy Spirit. You have the triune nature of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who are co-equal, co-existent from all eternity. One is not greater than the other. They sit on their cosmic throne in all their regal majesty and they rule and they reign. 
As we read of in the scriptures that God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. And the Lord Jesus is saying, as he existed in the form of God at that particular time, what does he do? In order to redeem man, he doesn't hold on to his position reigning over the universe. Instead, he empties himself. Because this is what is required in order to redeem man. Man can't do it. And so God had to do it. So he empties himself. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of deity. Because he cannot stop being God. But what it does mean is that he humbles himself and he takes the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. He adds humanity to his being. That he is still fully God. And yet he is truly man. So he doesn't stop being God. He just adds humanity to his being. And as you go to some of the early church creeds, which can be very technical at times, and sometimes you've got to go back and reread it to say, you know, what exactly did they just say? But the early church creeds themselves would express that very truth. That he is truly God. He is truly man. The two natures of, of Christ are not confused. They're not, they're not intermingled together. They're not mixed together. They each retain their properties, yet make up the one man, Jesus Christ. He becomes a servant when he takes the likeness of men. And this is important to understand because the Lord Jesus didn't come to earth and just be a great king and serve no one. He wasn't a free man when he came. The one who sits on his cosmic throne, ruling and reigning, became subject to another's will. And that's exactly what Christ himself had done. Amen. He becomes a human being, and he is then subject to the Father's will. Amen. And so everything that he does is in light of what the Father would have him to do. He does nothing on his own initiative. He lays aside his divine prerogatives. He only does what the Father has commanded him to do. That's why when you look, when the Lord Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, and Satan comes and he says, you haven't eaten in 40 days? You look hungry. You need to eat. You're the Son of God. Turn the stones into bread. It wouldn't have been a sinful act for the Lord Jesus to turn the stones into bread and eat. But it wasn't according to the Father's will that he do that. So he did not act on his own initiative. He only did what the Father commanded him to do. And that is part of his humility. That is part of his overall humiliation of what he endures. Whereas beforehand he sits on his cosmic throne and now he doesn't have a place to lay his head. Now if you think of, uh, the, you think of the state in which Christ was before his incarnation, one of the most amazing passages that expresses that very truth is found in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read of the, the great vision that Isaiah has in the temple. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, as you look at this passage of Scripture, you'll notice in verse 1, when he says, I saw the Lord, that's a capital L, little O, little R, little D. Then when you get to verse number 5, when he says, from my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, you have a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The translators are giving us an an understanding of what words are being used here that express the one that Isaiah is seeing. When he sees the Lord in all capitals, that is the sacred name of God, that is Yahweh. When he sees, when he expresses that the Lord was sitting on his throne with a capital L, little O, little R, little D, that is the Hebrew word Adonai, that is the master, that is the sovereign. And the one who sits on his cosmic throne, the train of his robe, fills the entire temple, which expresses the the dignity and the majesty and the power of God himself. And then you have the seraphim that are flying around him. Seraphim means fiery ones. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. They can't even gaze at him. And they fly around and they cry out, holy, holy, holy. They're not just expressing that he's holy or that he's holy, holy, meaning he's holier than something else. They're saying, holy, 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 the most holy. They can't gaze upon him. They are literally called the fiery ones, literally on fire with the glory of God. And Isaiah sees this vision and he calls down a divine curse upon himself because he is immediately aware of his own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. And you think about holiness. You think about what it means. It's like if I take this sheet of paper and I tear it in half, it means that God is a cut above us. He's in a category all to himself. He's the epitome of purity. He is, the, he is absolute perfection in his being and in everything that he does. This one who sits on his cosmic throne, this is the one who condescends and takes the form of a servant. This is what Christ had done in emptying himself. And being made in the likeness of men, being found as in, a, in the appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The glorious one, the holy one of Israel, as the scripture calls him, carries out everything that was needed in order to redeem his people. As one theologian said, oftentimes we look at the cross and we, we see Christ dying on the cross. And, and sometimes it just makes us think perhaps of just how special that we are that he done that. But what it should do is just make us to realize just how vile that we are, that this is what it took to redeem us. It takes the death of the Son of God. And if you think about everything that Christ himself had accomplished, it wasn't just the cross that he accomplished redemption for his people. And what I mean by that is... If all that was necessary was the cross, he could have come right down, went straight to the cross, and then went back to the Father. But he didn't do that. He lives at least 30 years actively fulfilling the law of God to its perfection. He's declared righteous. 
Then he goes to the cross. And on the cross, it's, it wasn't the nails. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the spear in his side. It wasn't the beating that he took that atoned for your sins. It was on the cross that the Father pours out his righteous indignation upon his Son. So that the one who is sitting on his cosmic throne now expresses in Psalm 22, I am a worm and not a man. He endures the wrath of his Father in place of those who would believe in him. So that through faith, his righteousness and his perfection is now credited to you as if you had done it. Your unrighteousness was credited to him and he was punished for it. And yet he satisfies the justice of his father. So that the scripture says in Isaiah 53, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That is what Christ has done on behalf of all his people. To humble himself to that degree. And for that reason, he says, after completing his finished work, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very thing that Jesus prayed for in the garden in John 17, glorify me with the glory which I shared with you before the world was. And you see the Father doing that very thing. When you look in Daniel chapter 7 or in Revelation chapter 5, that you get to see what happens after the ascension of Christ, that he comes on the clouds of heaven. He's presented before the Ancient of Days, and he receives glory, power, dominion, that every people's nations and tongues should serve him. It's then that you find all the angelic hosts and the saints just worshiping him in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. These are the things that God has done for us through his son, the Lord Jesus. And if the greatest one that ever existed can humble himself to this degree, who are we in comparison to him? It is not a, a burden to serve one another. Think of how he has served us. He is our example. He is the example that we follow to walk in humility because that's what he did. And if we can take these truths that we learn from Scripture and, and we express them to one another and we delight in them and we're, we're learning together and as we're learning, we're coming into agreement with all of these wonderful things. This is what strengthens the people of God. This is what strengthens the church for generations more to come. And I pray indeed that your church will continue on for another 170 years. But it will take the people of God serving one another and loving one another to this degree. Not being self-serving, but being selfless towards one another. Amen. And the scripture tells us, just as it does with Christ Jesus, how the Father exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, which is Lord, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Lord, which is Adonai, and the New Testament is Kurios, the Master. The Lord promises those of his in Galatians chapter 6. 
he says to us. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. You only have so much time here on the earth. Time to serve God and time to glorify the Lord. So let us use it wisely and let us use it indeed to do what is written to love one another to that extent. Thank you very much.